0: The baseline
1: out. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Hardwood Knock Podcast. My name is Dan Vivali coming at you once again without my co-host Andy Bailey as he continues to tend to his newborn son Benjamin. We will then excuse him for as long as he needs to. This does mean that I am super pleased though to be joined by Cole Zwicker. Uh, he is a co-founder and writer for the Stepian. He's a scout for at Net Scouts. He contributes to the Stepback. He is also an attorney and an MBA collective bargaining agreement expert. You should definitely be following him on Twitter. He is at Cole Zwicker. That's C O L E Z W I C K E R. And definitely make sure you're giving him a follow. Um, how are you doing? I'm happy to have you back, Cole.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me back. Last time was fun, and I think we rated the top prospects the last three years. And yeah, that was a lot of fun. I like this rapid fire kind of style that you guys do.
1: It was we went like there were just rabbit holes, and we started talking about Joe Harris's free agency. I remember at the end, so stuff <laughs> got weird, and it, it was awesome.
0: Yeah, that's always fun when it kind of goes off the ledger, and you start you know having to make <laughs> improvisational <laughs> choices on the podcast.
1: Right, so the off, we love the off the cuff stuff, but when you're doing, we were doing so much trade deadline content that it, with all the rumors and all the news, it just seems so scheduled. So I'm really happy to get back to the, just like some more random stuff, and that means that we get to do a mailbag today, which you were kind enough to agree um, to hop on and do. So uh, we have questions here that were in uh, the mentions of the mailbag tweet we sent out. So if you're ready, I'm gonna fire away at you and, and help you lead us into the to this great unknown. Let's do it. All right, this one comes from Tom Fischel. He is a regular uh, mailbag questioner, at Fischel underscore Tom. This will probably be irrelevant because because Tibbs, but should the Wolves start Tyus Jones over Jeff Teague is his first question. He has two, but let's start with his first one.
0: I mean, from what I've seen at Tyus, he's been really solid this year. I know the defensive RPM really high. So overall, a lot of Wolves fans have been making that claim just for you know Tyus is shooting and defense fitting that starting lineup next to butler wiggins and having teague as that scoring punch off the bench but to answer the question i do think it's kind of irrelevant because tibbs is probably not going to do it when you invest you know 17 million or whatever they're paying uh jeff teague is a starter that's pretty hard to demote somebody like that that you're investing that kind of capital in
1: and with with i'm with you and with tibbs it's not necessarily a demotion as an fu i'm just not going to play you because the, the Timberwolves bench has totaled the fewest minutes of NBA, any NBA team in the league by almost it's like a seventy-five minute margin, an eighty-minute margin, which is fairly substantial. And he just doesn't he doesn't turn to those guys. And I, I get I kind of get the argument for it. And that lineup, when uh, Tyus Jones plays with the starters instead of Jeff Teague, they're destroying opponents by I just looked it up. It's twenty-four point one points per hundred possessions, that ranks third. Among eighty-four qualified lineups that have logged at least a um, hundred minutes this season, it's like that. I get it, but at the same time, like I mean, you said it. You gave Jeff Teague, I think it was three years and fifty-seven million dollars. So why are you going to start Tyus Jones? And there was even talk, remember, right after the trade deadline, that they would have interest in signing Derrick Rose, and then he has officially cleared waivers. So it's tough for me to believe that Tibbs is that high on Tyus Jones that that he would really start him uh, over uh, Jeff Teague if given the option and and the other thing there would be he doesn't like to rely on youth so you're, you're looking at Tyus Jones who again has been playing well but he's 21 and that just doesn't seem like a Tibbs thing to do
0: yeah you've probably seen more of Tyus than I have this year do you think his play is for real like, is it indicative of the numbers that he's put up so far
1: I think I, I I do, and it's not like I don't think he's a better player necessarily than Jeff Teague, but like he shouldn't have to fight with Jamal Crawford for minutes in the backcourt. He most certainly shouldn't have to fight with Derrick Rose for minutes in the backcourt. Uh, he's he's a pretty good finisher around the rim, and I love his defense. Is just something that um, Jeff Teague isn't going to bring. He's like when I watch Tyus Jones, he reminds me of just like has the bulldogged relentlessness is the only way I could put it of Kyle Lowry, and like that's really fun fun to watch and he has active hands he is third in steals per 36 minutes among every player who's logged at least a thousand total minutes this year i just think he gives you more of what you need when you're looking at, at the starting lineup with jeff teague or with tyus jones the issue for me would be i think another coach would maybe do something different and stagger players as minutes um in different forms and, and maybe it's a matter of Let's let Jeff Teague just run more of these second units or let's experiment even more with just Jeff Teague and Andrew Wiggins on the floor and we'll let Tyus Jones run with starters. But the two caveats I, I would say, and I'm interested to know whether you would agree, one, if he's playing a lot of second unit minutes, the competition's going to be inherently easier. And two, he's going to get to play with a lot of starters. So some of his numbers are going to be inflated uh, defensively, too, because you get to play alongside Taj Gibson and Jimmy Butler Uh, so that probably factors into it a little bit, but I just look at him, and he's probably more complimentary than Jeff Teague is, and so when you have someone who's willing to accept basically that role-player role and thrive in it, that's where it becomes like almost an issue of fit over flash, even though Jeff Teague isn't some star, but that's what this really kind of seems like to me.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with you. I mean, Butler's their best initiator on offense by far on that team. You already have Towns, as far as his regression usage wise like he doesn't get the same looks he's already getting so why wouldn't you want to put more fit players and more kind of role players in there that will just bring that three and d element like jones let butler run your offense get towns more involved and then let teague kind of be that scoring presence off the bench i totally get where the uh the listener is getting with this question i think it makes a lot of sense it's just a factor of reality and you know (laughs) real-time issues with franchises you like Starting point guards, you make that much money. It's it's hard to put them on the bench and make them play in that role. But I totally agree with you as far as finding out ways to better stagger lineups, getting ties with the starters more, getting Jeff Teague with the backup guys. You can still do that without just having to flip your roster or your depth chart over with who starts and who comes off the bench. You just it's all about maximizing lineups, maybe, you know, pull Jeff Teague out a little bit earlier in the first quarter, enter him in with the second unit. That that would just go a long way, I think, in kind of optimizing all of these guys. Uh, I'm, I'm with you there. Uh, moving on to the next
1: part of Tom's question. Do the Raptors have a legit shot at beating the new look Cavs? I'm
0: assuming he means in a seven game playoff series. I mean, a legit shot. I don't know <laughs> what degree we're going out there. I think they have a, a reasonable shot. The Raptors, I mean, stylistically, they're a little bit different this year. But again, we have to factor in their recent playoff history and the guys, Kyle Lowry's been great in the regular season. DeMar DeRozan's been great this year. If they regress again in the playoffs, it's just tough to beat a team with LeBron and spacing around him. I think the Cavs, I mean, everybody's talking them up after the Boston win. The Cavs are still going to have issues defensively. All their perimeter players have issues outside of, like, George Hill, who's a respectable defender. But Rodney Hood, Jordan Clarkson, J.R. Smith, those guys are all capable of being picked on. Can they really guard both Lowry and DeRozan? Maybe. I think they have a shot. I, I think the The Raptors are definitely balanced. I could see them coming out of the east. But when LeBron has spacing around him, that's just going to be a tough out for any team to be able to guard them consistently as well. So I think offensively, the Cavs are still good enough. I would favor them in the east. But I do think the Raptors have a legit shot at beating them.
1: It's You touched on it with the LeBron plus spacing aspect of this, and it's something I kept coming back to And when their trades initially went down. So this isn't including um, their win over the Celtics on Sunday, but the Cavs' outgoing players, the six of them, were shooting 29.1% combined on catch-and-shoot threes. They're four incoming players, 38.2% combined on catch-and-shoot threes, and they'd made almost 50 more threes combined than those six players that were going out. So to put that kind of shooting around LeBron James... I I will have to wait and see if this works out long term or for the rest of the season, but that's just so dangerous offensively. And I think you could have just made the case because the Cavaliers have LeBron James. They would remain the Eastern Conference favorites anyway had they not done anything (laughs) at the trade deadline. That being said, the Raptors are just so deep. And this is if I would have asked you at the beginning or even just told you at the beginning of the year that their defensive rating in the middle of February would rate higher than their offensive rating. Would you believe me?
0: Probably not, no, from they're, what I've seen of the Raptors, which I I don't watch as much as a lot of people. I mean, I try to catch them, but they're kind of established, so I'm, I'm more focused on the young guys, but that would surprise me.
1: Yeah, they're third in defensive rating and fourth in offensive rating. Like, that's just—that's nutso balance, and they they've just been getting great production off of basically everyone from their bench. They have so many— I think what makes them more dynamic against the Cavaliers this year, aside from DeMar DeRozan has basically perfected his craft in the pick-and-roll. He's shooting better than 34% from three this year. That certainly helps. But now you just have all these additive ball handlers, knowing you can get minutes from Dellen Wright, knowing you can get minutes from Fred Ramfleet. That, that makes them a little scary. That being said, their defense has been so good, but like they're not the— they're not the switchiest team, even with OG and Anobi. I'm I'm just not a fan of their front court combination. And Dwayne Casey does a hell of a job uh, knowing and picking his spots and when to play. Uh, Jonas Valanciunas, But Serge Ibaka has always been a little bit of an overrated defender. And what happens when the Cavaliers go super small? Like, can you get away with pa- Pascal Siakam playing heavy minutes in that type of series? Or can you even get away with Pirtle, who doesn't really switch that much on defense anyway? I've underestimated the Raptors, I feel like, at every turn this season, because they have just so many glue guys that are playing really well. But particularly when looking at Cleveland's new roster, I I would almost be inclined to make them heavy favorites in the series. And at least this time, though, it doesn't have much to do with, oh, Kyle Lowry and DeMar DeRozan need to prove that they can be efficient in the playoffs first.
0: Yeah, it just comes down to whether or not Toronto can guard the Cavs, like you noted. When the Cavs go small, they're almost basically incredible like Kevin Love at the 5. They're going to play Jonas off the floor. They have to play Serge Ibaka against them. They can kind of experiment with different lineups the Raptors can and I think they can definitely score in the Cavs. But when you start getting into kind of like a gunpowder matchup with with the Cavs as far <laughs> as you know high velocity offense and all of that that's going to be tough. I mean the Warriors can op- obviously do that because they have the offense and the defense, but when you just have the offense and you go against LeBron, I mean he's going to usually be the favorite in those kinds of matchups and I just think that the Cavs they're harder to guard now. They have you know, athleticism. They have Larry Nance playing the small ball five. They can do that along with Tristan Thompson. Both those guys can be like spread, pick, and roll dive men. And when you put that kind of floor spacing around, Le- around LeBron, again, it's just very, very difficult to guard that over a seven game series because the Cavs can just get supernova hot and there's just nothing you can really do about it. JR J. Smith and Jordan Clarkson being kind of the two X factor swing guys, like against Boston when they shot well, that's just a really tough situation. So, A lot of Toronto's players, like you noted off the bench, have been playing great this year, but they're also young players. We'll see how they react in a playoff environment with more consistent roles. I think all of those guys are are legit rotation guys, and I do like their depth. But again, a lot of those guys aren't really established in the playoffs. That's kind of a lazy argument. We'll just see how that translates. The other thing that will be interesting to see is how Dwayne Casey just
1: changes his rotation because we know most coaches tighten up their rotations in the postseason and one of the raptors most effective lineups and one of their most used is their third most used that i'm looking at now is just the all bench mob of miles Pirtle, siakam van fleet and Dellen wright and they're destroying opponents right now by 32.8 points uh per 100 possessions when they're on the floor and that's their third most used lineup it's only 147 minutes but that's just that's nuts so but what happens when you're playing your starters having minutes or you know and the raptors the starting lineup is good the Having OG Ananobi there, it completely – even when he's hit his rookie wall, it's completely shifted their defensive identity, made them more balanced. But what kind of happens when you're not exploiting uh, your depth as often as you're used to because you need to, or at least in theory, have your most important guys on the floor at at all times? And if I'm looking at a squad that is going to play a top-heavy rotation, I am, of course, going to pick the Cavaliers over the Raptors in in that aspect.
0: And I think – the last note for me is just the acquisition of og i'm not saying he can really guard lebron consistently and nobody really can but they've never had somebody with his kind of physical traits in the playoffs i mean pj tucker last year i guess you could say but just og's length and athleticism they can have him in a high you know energy role guarding lebron he can exert full defensive energy on ball to you know just make lebron's catches harder make it harder for him to receive the ball so there is some advantages to having him on the roster uh now i mean they don't Again, they haven't really had that kind of measurables guy that can really have that young kind of athleticism that can maybe give LeBron some hard time. I don't expect him to lock him down, of course, but just making his life difficult is a dynamic that would definitely be beneficial to the Raptors. Yeah, for sure. And will
1: he will he play a lot of four? Maybe with Norman Powell on the floor in that series too, because I just can't. I wouldn't be a fan of you look at the Raptors front court. And Siakam's a good defender, but having even like one of those guys, one like him with Ibaka, or him with Valanciunas, or him with Pirtle, like none of those two man combinations at the four five really do it defensively for me. When you're looking at a potential Raptors Cavalier series, that that would just be. But again, having Ananobi huge. And how about I was actually right or talking about this the other day. One of the stroke of geniuses of Masai Ujiri was. When they traded that first round pick to get Ibaka from the Magic, making it the less favorable of their own. And I think it was the Clippers. And that really put them in a position to draft Adanobi in the first place, which is just incredible when you look back. That's a nice little bit of uh, just hindsight.
0: That's a great point. Yeah, Masai's so good. I mean, I think he's been so underrated as a GM. Oh, he yes, he's been properly rated as one of the elite guys. But that was a great trade. And uh, just protecting like that, that just shows that everything matters, every single marginal choice you make, even choosing between the two picks. Nobody really expected OG to fall that far outside of like the medical information that came at the last minute, but still, I think they said they were shocked to see him at 23. I know the Nuggets traded down in hopes of landing him at 24. That's at least the story, so great get by them.
1: Uh, yeah, and that was the other thing is I was shocked that he even was available to start the season. Like, uh, Forget like hit, you know, Norm Powell goes down, he enters the starting lineup, never gives up the spot. I just never, I, I never even saw him beginning the season. Um, So if you you had to pick, though, so right now there's a seven-game series between the Cavs and the Raptors. Would you give the Raptors six games? Not to win, but do you think they would be able to push
0: Cleveland to six games? Yeah, I would go between five and six. I'd say Cavs in five or six. Probably lean six right now. Just again, I'm not feeling the Cavs' defense yet. I mean, we'll see how that manifests over the next 27 games or whatnot. But yeah, I'd probably lean Cavs in six.
1: It's amazing, and they defended well against the Celtics, the Cavaliers did on Sunday night, but again, it's one game. Uh, It's amazing, though, that this is where we're at. Even if we assume the Cavaliers' defense is terrible, we've all been getting these jokes off, we've all been criticizing them all year, (laughs) and we're just at the point where the team that is number one in the Eastern Conference right now, I'm with you, I might even pick the Cavaliers in five. It's just, it's all so futile, isn't it? You know, with the East is still, it seems at this point, oh, you have LeBron James, all right, we'll see you in the NBA Finals.
0: Pretty much. I mean, he he deserves that too. I mean, over the years, like he can get he's shown like if you give him floor spacing, he's like the only guy I've ever seen. that can handle pretty much all the playmaking usage and he can get you to the finals. Yes.
1: Yeah, so I'm with you. I'd probably pick five or six. I might almost lean five. But the Cavaliers defense is iffy. And if it were to start today, there'd obviously maybe be chemistry issues. But five, six feet. The Raptors have been so good. So I'll say six. I'll go with you on Cavs and six. Um, this question comes from. Mario, at Mario Meridal. I'm probably mispronouncing that terribly. It's at Mario, M-E-R-I-D-A-L-L-L. Want to speculate where Donovan Mitchell's development would be today had everyone from Utah's 2016-2017 season
0: stayed? Probably one of the most difficult questions to answer, just because predicting rate of development is probably the single hardest thing to do with prospects. So obviously court time is what he's getting at and like that muscle memory getting on the floor and getting that experience as opposed to if he wasn't in the same role. I think you have to factor in the – you can't replace on-court experience. So Mm -hmm. I don't think he's going to develop the same way as far as how they're using him as a high usage kind of creator type, as pick-and-roll passer. A lot of things he didn't really show at a high usage in college as far as getting to the rim, finishing. So I don't think he would develop the same way because honestly his role would probably be different if – you know, everybody like if Hayward's there and he's playing pick and roll, Mitchell's probably more of a spot up guy. He just came into a situation where Rodney Hood was injured to start the year, so Mitchell was placed in a more on ball role, and you just can't really replicate that in any other way. So, I think honestly, if this didn't happen the way it did, maybe you look at Mitchell as more of like an Avery Bradley type. That was a really consistent kind of player comparison I saw for him coming out. And he's obviously surpassed that. I mean, his ball handling has been much better. His playmaking for others has been better. And he's just been more of like a lead guard or hybrid lead guard, maybe more of a two, but definitely more of a playmaker. And he's gotten that experience and that usage where a lot of rookies wouldn't have.
1: And the other thing I always wondered is, do they make that trade for Donovan Mitchell if they didn't have a strong inkling that they were going to part ways with George Hill over the summer? Uh, maybe they would make it anyway. But if would that have been... Gordon Hayward's situation with free agency always would have been up in the air, and I don't think that they thought necessarily that he was going to leave at that point. George Hill's situation was always a bit more curious. I know they ended up trading for Ricky Rubio right before free agency started, so was that writing on the wall even earlier? Maybe you kind of saw that, well, if we're not going to have George Hill on this roster, we just need other ball handling options, and I question whether if you would have— if they would have, if you would have told me they have no idea what's going to happen with George Hill, or they think he's going to come back, would Mitchell have still been uh, the guy that they go in
0: for on draft day? From all the reports that I've heard, yes. I mean, a couple of guys beat writers for Utah said that you know Mitchell blew them away in their personal workout. Like he's even noted that on a podcast. He said that you know his workout in Utah was awesome. He was terrible in Miami, apparently. So that's kind of the way this goes. Sometimes is who you play well for in these personal workouts goes a long way. But the one of the beat writers for Utah said that they had him, like, number one on their board. Now, who's to know if that's really true? If, if they would have actually taken him at number one overall, like it's been reported, that's just mismanagement. I mean, you would at least try to trade back. That would be the responsible thing to do, trade back to, like, six or something where somebody wants Fultz or Lonzo. But it sounds like from all reports that Mitchell was their guy, regardless of how they felt about Hill. I know... There are other reports that said Hill kind of poisoned the waters with the franchise a little bit. They didn't part on the best of terms, so maybe that had some part to play. I think it's a good point to bring up though, and it's hard to really know for sure. But from all reports and for all indications, it sounds like Mitchell was their guy kind of through and through. He just never. And I
1: agree with you. Even if he was their guy, he never would have gotten this type of opportunity playing with. Again, if if it was both Hayward and Hill, would he even play? Because look at how many ball handlers Utah's rosters then saddled with. I guess maybe he would see. Quinn Snyder's always been kind of open to testing. I don't want to call him a fringe guy, but he's always been kind of open to testing different players and different lineups, uh, especially when things get rough and the Jazz are notoriously injured, it seems, all the time. So maybe he would have experimented, but forget what his role would have been on the court. Would he he
0: even have seen it? Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, that's huge for rookies. I mean, how you utilize and what your role is – In a large part, defines your progression. I mean, getting these reps and understanding, you know, passing angles. He's worked a lot with Ricky Rubio on this stuff, and these are huge qualities to him as as a primary career type. If he's going to emerge as that guy or he's going to be more of a two guard, I think you can make a a pretty definitive case that if he comes in behind Hayward and Hill, he's not developing these skills at the same rate, and he might, and his chances of becoming like this primary ball handler type would be mitigated. And the one thing—so this would be, I guess, my own question I'm going to throw to you in the mailbag. Are you—do
1: you think that he has a legitimate chance of beating out Ben Simmons for Rookie of the Year?
0: I I don't know. It just depends on how people view it. Like, the people that cover this kind of, of voting, it's more about, like, scoring and highlight plays. And Mitchell has that. Like, he's a better shooter than Simmons, and of course, from three and everything. And I think he pops more as a scorer. So I I do give him a chance to win. I would clearly vote Simmons. I just think he's affected the game in so many different ways. Some that, you know, you don't see really being mentioned that much. Like his defense has been a lot better than his reputation suggested, which was always kind of a false narrative when it came to his defense at LSU. Like he didn't try, but it wasn't because of a lack of abilities or whatnot. So I guess to answer your question more succinctly, I think Mitchell probably has a chance to win just because of how people view this kind of award. But Simmons is my clear-cut top guy.
1: It, I'm wondering if it factors in I think he's still Simmons is still the top guy for me but I just look at yeah, just what Donovan Mitchell's doing for a team that's contending for a playoff spot in the West and what he's done when some of the more important players aren't on the floor whereas with Simmons the Sixers are still just awful basically when anyone whenever anyone ever plays without Joel Embiid but uh, again Simmons defensive tools like those have been super impressive. I would be remiss, however, if I didn't mention that I, I'm just whenever Ricky Rubio has not been on the floor this season and Donovan Mitchell's gotten to run the show, it's been pretty interesting with some of the Jazz's most used players. And and Andy likes to continue to come back to this. And with <laughs> with Rubio off the court, when Mitchell plays with Ingles and Gobert, the Jazz are a plus eleven point four per one hundred possessions with top notch offensive and defensive ratings. That's just I for me. I just think it's way closer than I. I I ever would have thought. I think a month into the season, I was just, it's, it's Ben Simmons and and no one's going to even come close to topping him.
0: Yeah, I am 100% with you. I did a podcast with Sam Vecini about three weeks ago. We talked about, you know, top five rookies so far and he was clear-cut Simmons one and I was more, like, I could see, I would start entertaining arguments for Donovan Mitchell in that stratosphere, even though I would still lean heavily to Simmons. Mitchell has an argument.
1: Next up is Brad Murdoch at... Kelper Express, or Kepler Express, excuse me, at K E P L E R E X P R E S S. Out of the teams near the back, who drops out of the Western Conference playoffs before season's end?
0: Oh, boy. Let me see here. Um, It's easy to say the Pelicans overall just because of the boogie injury. Miritich is going to give them an added spacing dynamic, but it's just hard to see the depth on that roster really surviving they're they're so heavily reliant on Anthony Davis like I watched the Nets game the other day and he was just absurd in that game double overtime but (laughs) it's just hard to rely on so few primary guys like they were so top heavy as is and then you you regress to losing cousins now your front court's a little bit decimated you're relying so much on Davis and Drew Holiday. They seem like the clear cut team to me. I mean, you can argue Portland as well. It's it's going to be tough just because I mean there's what two games separating 6 from 8 right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you can see the Jazz are on a roll. They they've been playing really well lately. So, I get s- it's tough within those couple teams. I think I trust the Nuggets the most. I, they're going to get Millsat back at a certain point. I know that's been kind of a rough acclimation with him and Jokic to an extent. But right now, the Pelicans are the clear choice to me of a team to regress.
1: I don't. I don't know that there is another pick. You, the, if the Nuggets were not if when they get Paul Millsap back, that's like kind of their trade deadline ac- acquisition, so to speak, because you haven't had him. And then even with Trey Lyles's emergence, like those are kind of your two big time uh, additions to the roster. The Blazers, I, they're they're so up and down. I, I can't see them dropping off And the top five for the West is just is just in for me. And I I would be inclined to go just saying that it would. The playoff race is going to stay where it lies right now. But the Clippers, I feel like they could be frisky. And the Jazz have been playing so well. They've won nine in a row. They've been absolute monsters since Rudy Gobert came back. And and for all the reasons you said, the Pelicans are just the easy choice. And I I wonder how if we look. So say the Pelicans miss the playoffs. And, again, they only have a half-game lead on the eight seed right now. That being said, they're only two games off of fifth place. So we can't. This isn't a death knell. Do you would you view that trade for Mirotic any less favorably if they miss the playoffs now, or is it just, well, they got off O'Meara Sheik's money, so it's fine?
0: For me, it's just, it's always an issue of process and not result. I mean, most of the time, I like to judge decisions based on what the input was. And you look at a team like the Pelicans, they haven't kept a single first-round pick since they drafted Anthony Davis. So they've either traded the pick or traded the player that they got. So Buddy Heald, I, I love that trade. That was the one exception for me. Buddy Heald for, I mean... For Boogie Cousins, I completely understood that move, but I just see a, a consistent error in how they evaluate and how they proceed as a franchise. Like, why you can't just keep, you know, throwing the towel in on your picks, and you have to invest in your future. Like, what if they kept those picks over the years with Davis and actually cultivated talent and built a, a roster around him? So, I just don't like the decision every year to kind of trade that doesn't really move the needle. Like, okay, I get that you're a franchise; you want to, it's a business; you want to make the playoffs for that extra revenue. But there's no guarantee that you make the playoffs if you traded your first-round pick for Miritich. And, you know, $12.5 million for Miritich is fine next year. I, I think Miritich is a solid player. But he doesn't move the needle for me. And this pick could be in this class, which is really loaded. I mean, it could be, like, the 12th pick in the class. That could be, like, Mikael Bridges, who's one of, like, the best 3 and D wings in five years. So it's just tough to to really gauge and respect the decision-making process every year. Because it just doesn't... I don't know. I just... I'm philosophically against what they do on a yearly basis.
1: <laughs> it's amazing how often they've kind of done it too. It seems like ever since Anthony Davis's sophomore season, like, was it, was it maybe like the Tyreek Evans contract, like, marked this shift in thinking that we just have to try and win all out as soon as possible? And it's led to just this series of impulsive decisions when you look at how the roster has changed over those years.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's I don't know. I mean, the Solomon Hill that offseason where they just got those... It's just... Yeah. <laughs> I, just, I, I, I don't have much else to say about them.
1: <laughs> yeah, I will say this for them. They did not give out 2016 money in 2017 like the Knicks and the Bulls. That was one of the more funny things to me. Giving 4-32 and forty-two, four and 32 to Cristiano Felicio uh, when I want to know who was giving him that money. And then the same for Knicks and Tim Hardaway Jr. at four years and 71. So the Pelicans can put that under their hat. Um, That's a fair point. This is, so this is going to be... This is a kind of a fun one, kind of a tough one from Tim Slim at me, Tim, oh, Tim Sim at me, Tim Sim, M E T I M S I M. If you started a franchise, what starting five would you choose, no cap, for the next seven years?
0: Okay, this is tough. Um, I'm going to kind of go one guy and then pass it back to you, and we'll do it that way because off the top of my head, this is difficult. I think I would choose, uh, I think I would go Giannis first. He would be um, my first pick, and I think that's kind of that's kind of a no brainer. I would. Yeah, think. just building around him is a little bit different because I'd like to play him more at center <laughs> and kind of get just mismatchy like that. I think that's how you really extract him as like the role man type. But he he's the guy that stands out for me. Is there any guy after that, that that's clear cut for you?
1: I is is this going to be like too much of a cliche? Or I'm, I would say Anthony Davis. I just feel. Yeah. I mean, do we forget that he's he's not even twenty five yet? He's going to turn 25 in March, and he's just so good. And that kind of ruins your play Giannis at center thing. But you could play Giannis at the four with him at the five, and they're basically interchangeable. And Davis hasn't liked playing center in the past. So I, I don't, I mean, he's still, to me, when we talk about the next in line to take LeBron James's throne, I do believe it's Giannis Attentacumpo, but I also feel like Davis is basically that next option up. And, and we tend to not. I'm not calling out individuals, but I feel like collectively in, in the NBA-verse, we've almost forgotten about him or started to take him
0: for granted. I agree with that. And like just from building a roster, I guess, conducive to Giannis, Davis makes a lot of sense with his jump-shooting ability. He gives him a little more versatility. Instead of you know a guy like Ben Simmons, who I think is probably a top six or seven prospect moving forward, his fit on that team gets a little dicey just because you have to kind of choose who's your guy that's you know going to be your non-shooter almost, mm-hmm. and not have that gravity. So I think that I would I would lean Giannis there. Um, do you have a second guy? Would it be Anthony Davis for you as well? He's definitely in consideration. I'm looking over the teams right now, and he stands out probably more than everybody else. I mean, Towns defensively, you have concerns there. I think I would take Davis. Uh, Embiid. That's the tough one for me because I, I love Embiid. I think that Just he injuries right. Exactly, he'd probably be my number two prospect, even over Davis. Honestly, I think he can anchor a defense to a higher degree. His upside is higher there, but with the injuries, I, I think I'd probably give the slight edge to uh, to Davis there.
1: So, uh, who, your second would be so it is Davis then. I just want to make that clear. Yes. Uh, so we have Giannis yes. and Davis. Who would you put for? Who would you put as your third?
0: I think you have to go guard here. I, I guess because you need some kind of off the dribble shooting dynamism there. It's tough because all the elite offensive guards right now are, are older. I mean, would you consider Steph Curry or James Harden in this conversation, even with their age? I might
1: consider Stephen Curry. I'm not going to lie. He's just, he's just so good off the ball, and I feel like his game is the type of game that should age well. But I, he's going to be—so in seven years, he'll be 36. That's probably—I probably wouldn't pick him. That's so tough. He turns 30 in March, so I, that, that's that's so tough. I probably wouldn't pick him, but I'd consider him. And James Harden's even younger. I think, what, is James Harden 27, or is he 28 now? James Harden is 28. Uh, so I would consider it, but I, I think uh, – I, I don't know. That's tough. Would you pick either of them?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, you, you start getting into conversations based on, like, prospects then, like with Donovan Mitchell or, like, you can't pick Markel Fultz based on the situation. If you're talking about pure prospect and he was UW Fultz, I would think about him. But you got to start adding some off-the-dribble and off, off-ball shooting equity to this roster. So – it comes down to how you feel about some of these young point guards, um, maybe some young wing types. And again, a lot of the established players are, are older guys. And a lot of the younger guys are bigs like Kristaps, Jokic. Yeah. Those guys would be fine picks. Depends on how big you want to get. I mean, you could play Anthony Davis, Porzingis and Giannis together in theory. Would you actually want to do that? No, 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 no. <laughs> I think my
1: pick for three, I think I would honestly go Donovan Mitchell. I feel like it's a, it's kind of a nice hedge, and I, like he's already a good shot creator, and you put him, he can run pick and roll with both Giannis and Anthony Davis, and he also still gets to be the secondary ball handler at points because you have Giannis, and just, I like to look for guys who can play off um, other guys, and, and Giannis, I think he, he's been working as a role man, particularly this season, but he, like you said, if he's going to be your non-shooter um I'm, I'm gonna want a young dynamic guard there I, I would go Donovan Mitchell I'm really tempted to take Stephen Curry and I'm, I'm not entirely convinced I won't take him by the end of this exercise
0: that's kind of where I'm leaning to just going over these guys I mean you could make a case on this roster for fit Jason Taylor would make a lot of sense I mean his off-ball shooting you don't really need a lot of creation even though I think he's probably capable of a little bit more than he gets to show in Stevens's offense as he had the same kind of upside a guy like some of the other wings like Ingram had have, just haven't established themselves as much. So I, I think I'd probably go Stephen Curry with three just to make that a definitive pick. Nice. I'm glad you went there. Um, who would you go with for four? Oh boy. Um, I think you gotta add some wing at some point that has a little bit more size. Can we go Kawhi Leonard? Or like I I don't know. Like with the with the injury concerns, I I think I would lean him, honestly, if things are in a vacuum and we know his health, I, I think I would pick Kawhi. He spent his
1: entire career in San Antonio too. So this could be like super precautious or something. And, and I'm with you. I think that would be a solid pick. Um, yeah, I th- he's 26. I mean, he's, th- that's, he's not going to be incredibly old over the next seven years. So I think that's a solid pick and putting him in, in that line. I mean, your lineup now, with Stephen Curry, AD, and Giannis. That's, that's like, I feel instant three titles in a row. I'd probably go, <laughs> I'd probably go Kawhi Leonard too though. And that's not even a follow on your first step. Just he's such he's like a defensive changer, a game changer on the perimeter. And so I think exactly. I think that's big time. And for five, at least for me, I'm I don't know who it's going to be. I think I'd probably hedge with someone like more on the youthful side. But who would you pick to round out that starting five?
0: I'm leaning Mitchell, but again, like how old is Paul George? Is he like twenty eight, twenty nine ish already, or he's got to be up there? Paul um, George so another- is. How old is Paul George? He is 27. I might go Paul George. (laughs) If we're talking about just adding a ton of off-ball shooting, defensive versatility. You put a lineup with Stephen Curry, Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, Giannis, (laughs) and Anthony Davis on the floor. I think you accomplish playing both sides. You have a ton of switchability outside of Steph, but I think I'm going to go Paul George for my fifth guy.
1: I think I'm going to go with Stephen Curry because I was so tempted to take him. It's funny that we only diverged on on one player. I really wanted to think. I guess I didn't build the roster accordingly, but someone like a Jalen Brown or Jason Tatum, if you were really betting on the youth, they would have been interesting on one of these rosters.
0: Yeah, I feel like that's kind of what the question was going at a little bit more than how we approached it with the hybrid kind of youthful guys. Like Paul George isn't young, but he's still young enough. Same with Kawhi Leonard; those guys are more established. I'm guessing the question was geared more towards you know, taking the young prospects and who's the best out of that and building a team around those guys. But off the top of my head and up the top of your head, I think that's pretty, pretty well done job there.
1: Yeah. If, um, if I was going to go strictly youth, I would take out Leonard and Curry and I'd probably put in Brandon Ingram and Jason Tatum. I think, you know, how high I am on Brandon Ingram.
0: Yeah, no. Yeah, definitely. I, I kind of share most of your sentiments there. Do you, uh, and this brings another, I guess, unrelated question, but
1: if, who are you higher on long term, Tatum or Jalen Brown? That's a fascinating question to me.
0: I think Tatum, honestly, he's been better than I thought he would be defensively for sure. And the shooting, I just trust his shot making ability more. And if he's going to bring plus defense, I don't necessarily see either one as being like Kawhi Leonard defensively. I don't think Jalen's going to get to that level. I think there's still too many uh, mental lapses physically and athletically. He's ridiculous but I'm not sure if it's ever going to translate to the highest levels that people think. And I just trust Tatum shot more, but it is a fascinating conversation. A lot of people see more self-creation equity with Jalen Brown. And I think what's made him who he is, is how they've kind of utilized him and optimized him as kind of like a corner three point shooter. He can really attack closeouts, gets to the rim off one dribble can explode and just more is uh, yeah. Less is more with him overall. I think that was the problem with him in college. You sell a lot of self-creation, situations where he would turn the ball over he didn't have great spacing of course but I'm not sure if the decision making for him is ever going to be there I kind of trust Tatum in all those respects a little bit more
1: I see the I've gone back and forth and I I think my pick for a while has been Jalen Brown and it was primarily for the reason that I just see more self-creation out of him but if you have to kind of project Tatum's eventually going to be there. He's taking some tough pull-ups this year. They're not necessarily falling, but he does look like he could be that guy. And he probably looks long-term like he would be the better passer. Jalen Brown gets, like, this tunnel vision when he's in the post or, or when he's on drives. And I, it's still really close for me. And maybe I – may, I think you're right. That was a good way to put it. It probably won't translate at the highest levels, that difference. But for me, it's just it's just so damn close. And I feel like I've vacillated a bunch. Um, I just – I think – I have no idea. I've been picking Jalen Brown, but Jason Tatum over the past, even as his shooting has kind of waned, it's his defense has really just won me over probably like the last month or so.
0: And that's really Uh, it for me too. Following the draft, not a lot of guys predicted that he would be this kind of defender this quickly. It just didn't manifest at at Duke for whatever reason, whether he was recovering from injury or he just wasn't put in positions to really show his intelligence. And that's kind of my biggest takeaway with Tatum is just he's a smart player on both sides like he knows how to move without the ball offensively and defensively they utilize heavy switching schemes which helps him maybe not blow weak side rotations and whatnot but he's been a lot better there effort wise athletically I think that's translated better than he got credit for as well so he just does a a little bit more for me offensively and defense I don't really see the difference being that considerable to where I would just lean Tatum shooting. I think that's more of a surefire bet. And like you know, Jalen Brown's decision making has never really been there. I think he's good in the role he's in. It would be kind of fascinating to see what, hap- what would happen with his future if he went to another team. I'm not giving Boston all the credit. I think they deserve some. Jalen deserves some as well. It's just kind of a player that was more of an athletic mold guy coming out. You could kind of you know shape him any way you want. And the Celtics have done an awesome job. And his work ethic and personality and all that stuff has really shined through. It seems like Jason Tatum would be the easier plug and play option, and the other thing I probably should have
1: realized because we all know like the measurements. Jason Tatum has a seven foot wingspan. I, just watching him defensively, sometimes the way his arms react in passing lanes or when he's even in space, I just I guess I never fully appreciated how long he actually was.
0: Yeah, no, just, absolutely. I think that that's, that's a really good point.
1: Um, this one, I guess we should transition right to it. This is Raptors versus Celtics in the seven-game series. Who you got? That's from Dharma Nike, uh, at Mind of Dharma, M-I-N-D-O-F-D-H-A-R-M-A. I apologize if I butchered the pronunciation. But as we know, if you listen to this, I suck at
0: pronunciations. <laughs> That's a really great question. I have not watched these these two teams match up this year, honestly. So it's tough to really put a ton of stock in this. <sighs> I think I might lean Raptors right now just from what I've seen out of Boston I mean I trust their defense to an extent offensively I think they might be a little bit too lenient on Kyrie Irving and you know Horford creating from the high post can they really guard Toronto and can they score at a high enough level I know their offense their offense is dropping off a little bit of a clip of lately from what I've seen at least so I might lean the Raptors slightly but that's that's kind of a coin toss to me as you can see by my hesitation
1: I would lean Raptors too. I was actually hoping that that would come off hot takey, but now it won't because you already said it. I d- Boston, to me, I was, insofar as I could be disappointed in a team I don't care about, I-, I thought they really, I was disappointed that they didn't go out and get kind of another self-sufficient score at the trade deadline, especially when it seemed like those opportunities were there. I thought they definitely should have, and maybe they did, but I thought they definitely should have kicked the tires on Rodney Hood, who instantly becomes your second best pull-up shooter behind Kyrie Irving, even looking at the numbers, they don't have that guy in crunch time who can alleviate the burden on Irving in the half court when defenses are going to tamp down. And on a more macro level, they're statistically very good when Horford plays without Kyrie Irving, but part of the benefit of having those two players is you want to play them together. You don't want to have to worry about staggering as much, and so having that third shot creator in there, one day maybe it is Jason Tatum, it probably will be. Maybe it's even Jalen Brown, and you have four. Maybe it's even Terry Rozier. Those guys all bring a little bit of it right now, but just not enough for me to pick them in a series with the Raptors who are who are more balanced. The Celtics' defense is fantastic, and there are nights where their offense looks just electric, but they are 29th in points scored per 100 possessions since Christmas. 29th. That's ahead of just the Phoenix Suns. Like, that's just... yeah. That's a red flag, and it's going to get harder to score in the playoffs. It can't be all Kyrie, and as you said, it can't be all Horford. And if they could have gotten Rodney Hood or if that trade for Tyree Evans would have went through, I would feel a lot differently. But not having that bona fide, just, I call it a second, because you're not even going to go to Horford when you need a shot down the stretch. Like, he's a fantastic passer, and I love him. He's perennially underrated. But, like, you need that second face-up. Top of the key, go get me a bucket, and, and they just don't have that right now. Jalen Jason and they shouldn't. You know, Jalen Brown's a sophomore, Jason Tatum's a rookie, and, and they're good for where they are now, but they just don't have that that guy who's really gonna help their offense out when the game matters most.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I didn't know they were that bad defensively since Christmas. Um or offensively, sorry. But yeah, I the games that I've seen that they've struggled in is when Kyrie struggles, when teams can really get into him make him you know force him into bad decisions and really take away him as an option or at least mitigate him they just don't have enough ancillary pieces I, mean, I love their system offensively it involves everybody motion type they get they get the ball moving you know it's mostly predominantly Kyrie Horford pick and roll but they do have good system traits. like they, they headhunt mismatches with Jalen and, and Tatum especially when they play both of those guys in bigger lineups they can you know they can create points that way and Stevens is smart enough to siphon off points but in the playoffs like you noted When the pace slows down a little bit, when teams actually start exerting more defensive energy and game plan to stop Kyrie, take those things away, do they really have ancillary scoring? Of course, with Hayward, they would have that piece. I mean, Hayward's a brilliant piece to put next to Kyrie. That makes a lot of sense. I think Tatum will get there. But it's kind of difficult to expect that from a a rookie in the playoffs. I mean, Tatum's still 19. So I agree. I think in the playoffs, they, they don't have quite the offensive firepower in certain matchups to really get it done. And it's going to come down to Kyrie and how great he is in that kind of series. I mean, if Kyrie's playing at peak level Kyrie, we've seen him be one of the five, you know, top three best offensive players in a series. They can definitely beat the Raptors. It's just the secondary firepower offensively isn't there. I would
1: probably go. I think that would be a great series, and I hope we get it. Uh, seven game series, but I would pick the, the Raptors in seven for that one. Who, who would you who do you think is a better, more threatening matchup
0: for the Cavaliers, though? The Raptors or the Celtics? That's another great question. Um, <laughs> I would say the team that could best give LeBron issues, but also be able to, to guard them better in space. So despite the fact that Boston just got whacked by them, I mean, Marcus Smart was not playing that game, and he's kind of big for their team defense. So that's something to take into account. That's really tough, man. I, these three teams are like splitting hairs. But I think I might lean Toronto's a little bit tougher. For, for the Cavs, just again, for that offensive firepower, if the games tra- translate like they have during the regular season to the playoffs. Uh, and in this series, Raptors-Celtics, I would probably do the same as you. So, sorry to keep agreeing, but, I mean, coin flip, freaking series, I'm going to take Raptors 7.
1: No, and I'm with you there, too. I want to, for the Cavaliers specifically, I'd almost want to say the Celtics, just because, as you said, giving LeBron James problem, they're just problems. There's so many different matchups that the Celtics can use there that the Raptors just can't. But they're far more balanced on the offensive end. If you need a team to kind of get in a shootout uh, with LeBron and crew, I'd, I'd probably take the Raptors um, over them at this point. So there's the, the the fan base or the people still in the Toronto fan base who want us to care about their team and claiming that they forget. You you heard it here. We think that the Raptors are a more threatening matchup for the uh, for the Cavaliers in the playoffs. Um, this, this one's from Christopher Banks, and I, I don't mean to laugh. At Panthersfan2134, spelled exactly like it sounds, think oklahoma city will kick the tires on signing derrick rose
0: oh god um will they i have no idea i mean will i have no idea what his reputation is in the league i can't begin to understand with all the analytics departments that we have now with every team that he would be highly regarded as just a, a name value type guy who's their backup point guard currently raymond felton yeah, I would almost prefer Felton, honestly. Like it's just for he gives you an added shooting bonus. I, I don't really see any point in having Rose when Westbrook's going to play, you know, thirty eight, forty minutes in the playoffs, maybe more, and you're not going to play those two guys together. So I, I maybe he gets you down the stretch of the regular season, you can rest a little bit more guys. That would be his really only his his real only value to me.
1: I don't. I couldn't even imagine them. You, just another ball <laughs> dominant guy, to, and you have Paul George and Melo and. Uh, Russell Westbrook on the roster, and you've already— your defense has been impeded because you lost Andre Robertson, and now you're going to add Derrick Rose into the fold. You also know that Derrick Rose and Carmelo do not work together, so kind of running them in second units would be a disaster. I would rather have Raymond Feldman. It's not even close. I just—I I don't know necessarily how teams view Derrick Rose around the league, but the Jazz—the the Cavs traded him. The Jazz waived him. He was making the minimum. Like, it's just— the Bulls couldn't wait to get okay. rid of him. So I would imagine his reputation isn't all that great. Uh, you would
0: think, but I – yeah, go
1: ahead. But do you think he's going to – the teams I've seen for him, I think, are Washington, but Washington also has interest in Ty Lawson at the moment per Woj, uh, and then the Timberwolves. Do you, th- do you think he goes to – he's going to – like I, some people have even entertained the idea that he might be just out of the NBA now. I don't even know where I fall. I, there's still part of me that just feels like he's going to end up in Minnesota because of Tibbs, but I, I honestly don't know – where else he would fit Washington would make sense but they Derek Rose is basically a lower end Trey Burke at this point and Washington tried out Trey Burke last year
0: yeah I think from a sensical standpoint I tend to side with that party of he might not be an NBA player anymore I know Zach Lowe said that and I I tend to agree with that for the most part but based on name value and familiarity I could see him going with Tibbs it would just kind of be a shame with how well Tyus has played this year but it's definitely a it's one of those moves you could definitely see transpire We should just put him on the Celtics just to test out Brad Stevens' acumen. Like, work your
1: magic and make (laughs) Derrick Rose an NBA player again. On the flip side, I'd rather have Shane Larkin at this point on that Celtics team than Derrick Rose. Um, This this next question comes from Danny Barlavi at D-B-A-R-L-A-V-I. Who should the Knicks target if they have the cap they want to have in 2019 so I just want to throw this out there, and I, I'm sure you know this. The Knicks, as of right now, are not projected to have cap space in 2019. If you bake in um, a max extension for Kristaps Porzingis, and he gets $27 million, which is 25% of the projected $108 million cap, which might, if it continues going the way it has, it probably won't even be a $108 million cap. You'll have Tim Hardaway Jr. on the books. You'll be in the final year of Joe Noah's deal. Uh, maybe if you get rid of Lance Thomas's non-guarantee, I think he has a, a million guaranteed. So there, you can kind of pencil yourself in for about 11 to $12 million in cap space. The only way you're really getting more, um, and that's if you don't... Emmanuel Moutier, by the way, is going to be a restricted free agent in 2019 as well. So if you like him, he's going to cost you money with his cap holds. So they would have even less than $12 million in space when accounting for his cap hold. I would... I don't know who I would say for them to target. If they're going to stretch Joe Noah, which would be so Knicks, I think at this point you write it out because you know, to me at least, you know Porzingis is going to miss time next season as well. So you're essentially not competing for anything special for the next two years. Why have what would amount to, if you stretch him this summer, $7.6 million per year left on your books and dead money. So knowing that, though, if the Knicks were going to have cap space in 2019 or they can get to Max room, which presumably they can, it just, I think there are too many unnecessarily hurdles involved. Who would you want to see them target?
0: It's really interesting. Um, I mean, some of the top guys that could actually move Clay Thompson, we, we know the situation with the Warriors and their cap sheet as far as luxury tax payments, and maybe those guys don't want to play with each other anymore at that stage. It's like, we'll go our separate ways, kind of like what Kyrie did with LeBron. Like I i want to see what I can do by myself. I'm not sure if t- like a 28-year-old, 30-year-old Clay Thompson is going to be the best building block next to... Porzingis. And kind of the way I view that is I I like to go all in on the same kind of general sphere of players. So when you're talking about, you know, if your core is you know 20 to 22, 23, I'd like to align players with that core free agency wise. It's just tough. I mean, realistically, I don't think they should pursue free agency because you're not going to get value. Thank you. I don't think if you're the Knicks. (laughs) Yeah. So I would like you talk about like the draft this year, if they add like a Mikael Bridges and you see what you have in Nila as a point guard, I don't base really any decision making around Emmanuel Moody at this point. I mean, he's been such a disaster as a player. Um, maybe he gets new life in New York, but I'm not basing decisions around him. So I would build through the draft. I mean, they, for, for the first time, the Knicks have had their own picks, and they haven't screwed it up. And, you know, is I think, is going to be a solid player. Porzingis, obviously, was a great pick. You know, if they do well in the next two drafts, just kind of build through that core. You're probably not going to find a guy that aligns with him in free agency, unless it's like a second-round pick who outperforms their uh, current contract. Hey, Jordan Bell is a good one <laughs> as a realistic fit. I like Jordan Bell next to Porzingis. I think he can defend on the perimeter a little bit. So in two years, uh, I'll go with him because he actually kind of aligns with the core a little bit.
1: Yeah, and so just doing some quick math here, if you remove Emmanuel Moutier from the books and you go with Lance Thomas's non-guarantee and you pencil in Porzingis for $27 million, and you go with, I'm, I'm just estimating on roster charges. It's crazy that a roster charge in 2019, by the way, might actually cost teams a million bucks by that point. I think it's going to be almost 900K <laughs> this year. Uh, they could get to rather easily, while keeping Noah and Hardaway on the books, about $17.9 million in room, maybe 18. That's rough. So they could obviously go up from there. I just, I'm with you. It shouldn't be about free agency for them at this point. I do think Klay Thompson would be a great fit, but what are you competing for at this point? No, he doesn't align with Porzingis' window, but at the same time, Tim Hardaway Jr. and Courtney Lee could still be on the books. It's so tough to answer that question because I don't trust the Knicks not to make another like high-cost expenditure before then, like adding money via trade or something. If you're adding money and you're getting picks and prospects backs, like, that's fine too, but they could talk themselves into just being, oh, we're this one player away, so we're going to make that trade. I I don't want to say Kristaps Porzingis' injury was almost a blessing in disguise because they probably wouldn't have gone all in on a Kemba Walker trade. But as soon as that rumor hit, I was like, the Knicks are going to trade like Nikola and there first for Kemba Walker in a heartbeat. You could just see it coming. I like Jordan Bell. Uh, he would be super interesting there. It's just, it's kind of just tough to like survey the free agency landscape at at that point. I don't necessarily know who would be available. We know the big wings like Jimmy Butler is a player option. Kawhi Leonard, you know, if he would be willing to leave San Antonio. Yes, he'd be on the older end at that point, but I, I would still go after him. Uh, the Jordan Bell one is, is super interesting. I don't know how much you want to invest in a big when you already have Porzingis. And I guess Bell can play some power forward, but Porzingis at some point probably needs to play predominantly center, um, definitely after this in- injury. Uh, I, I don't know. I guess that'd be—I like the Bell one. That's interesting. And if I was going to pick from the older brigade that we just named— I would probably say Clay Thompson because he would say seem to be the most gettable. Just I know we had the report like Leonard and Spurs weren't on the same page from ESPN.com, but that's just like whatever. Maybe Butler's gettable, but think about all the minutes he'll have on his legs after he'll spent that much time playing for Tibbs. Um, so <laughs> that that would be kind of where I'm at for them. They would have to see. I'm like trying to think of like what the like restricted free agency market would be that year. Maybe would it be a bad idea for them to kind of be that team that tries to overpay Kelly Oubre Jr. He's really progressed, and he might be a really nice fit on that roster. But that's probably the situation they're looking at. If you have cap space, go after the restricted free agents who kind of align with your timeline. And, and I love Kelly Oubre Jr.
0: Me too. I'm a, I'm a big that's a, that's a nice call there. D'Angelo Russell's another guy. I mean, you're probably not going to outspend the Nets just because they they'll outbid probably anybody for him if he shows to be the kind of player and prospect we thought coming into. But if you don't think that Nilakina is the point guard of the future. If you think of him more as a wing type or a secondary creator, which is I'm more in line with, then maybe you look at a guy like D'Angelo who can come and give you more shot making off the dribble and he aligns with your core really well. But again, I don't think that's really realistic to assume they're going to be able... To, I mean, if they max him and he's good, which is the only reason you max him for, the Nets will just match. Yeah,
1: and I mean, it's tough It's tough with restricted free agents because there are other... Like Carl Anthony Towns, he'll probably get his extension. though. No, Miles Turner would be interesting next to KP. Um... Uh, but I, the Pacers would probably pay him to keep him. Malcolm Brogdon would be, he's long, and him and Neil Aquino together in the backcourt, if you're out on Moutier, that would make for kind of an interesting combination. And the Bucks, by that point, they're going to need to pay Eric Bledsoe and Chris Middleton, are both free agents in 2019, and they'll presumably have just paid Jabari Parker. Will he s- still be in their plans? That might be another
0: name for the Knicks to keep an eye on. Totally agree. And like other guys, like, you know, like Devin Booker is going to get that max extension. So a lot of these guys won't be on the market. And we'll see like the overall market dynamics this summer with how much free agency is probably going to be suppressed based mostly on what happened in 2016. Yeah, so it's tough to project. But I think
1: uh, that would be the the play that they should make. Maybe you find the younger restricted free agent and you make, you know, don't you don't want that free restricted free agent to be Tim Hardaway Jr. But you find the right guy and you try and overpay him or make an aggressive offer that makes his incumbent team really think. And if you miss out, hey, at least you tried. And you can kind of, you know, 2020 will be way more interesting for them if you care about free agency, should they decide to ride out the Joakim Noah contract.
0: 100%.
1: Um, and this would be our final question. It is also uh, what I consider the toughest question from Brian Ayers at what underscore A underscore B A. The top of the draft is usually slash best done via best player available. Which lottery teams do you all see as best fits for the top eight or so prospects in this year's draft?
0: Yeah, this is what I think about a lot, unfortunately. so I think you got to start with Luka Doncic. He's number one on my board. What is the best team fit for him? I think if Budenholzer stays in Atlanta, that's a really intriguing fit, honestly, just because they need a primary creator so much. He kind of can play off ball. He's a really good cutter, smart smart as far as relocating all of that stuff so he can initiate your offense and also play with an emotion type scheme so for me i think atlanta stands out a little bit more than some of these other guys even though if the Cavs somehow (laughs) get the top three pick i would love to see luca play next to lebron i think that would just be so fascinating
1: that would be wow i didn't i keep forgetting about the nets pick and how close um everyone is in like the the bottom of the standings it's i mean you look at it and as we're talking right now the nets are they're tied in the loss column for the kings have the lowest winning percentage so they're tied in the loss column with the kings with 38 losses uh they're they're only a game back of the worst record in the nba or the lowest winning percentage however you want to do it that's That pick could end up—again, the teams behind them or in front— I don't even know how you phrase it, but the Grizzlies and the Magic and the Suns and the Mavericks and the Hawks and the Kings, they're all not trying to win either. And Now you have the Knicks and the Bulls, and the Hornets at some point have to turn things down. But Luka Doncic in in Cleveland would would be something. Although if LeBron comes back, I fully expect Cleveland to kind of trade that pick. I like Luka Doncic in Atlanta. My question, though, is I've seen a lot of mock drafts just have DeAndre Ayton going to Atlanta if they have the number one pick. Is that just because— DA has become the unquestioned number 1 prospect in this draft or does he really does he make a ton of sense next next to John Collins is Collins not a long-term center I thought he'd be interesting just I know he's a little bit undersized but I thought he'd be interesting as a long-term five
0: Yeah I think Aton is just catching on it's probably the likely number 1 pick I think a lot of sites are split between Luca and Aiton. I think those are the two top guys for a lot of people. Not for me personally, but you can see the appeal with the league as far as a guy with just ridiculous physical traits, all of the athleticism and kind of coordination baseline with the skill level that he has at his size. He's just kind of what most expect to be the number one pick most years is a guy that has those kinds of tools. As far as on Atlanta, I've been impressed with John Collins this year. I wasn't super high on him coming into the draft, and he's impressed me. I'm not sure if he's good enough where he – like where I like to say, you draft around. So he's he's definitely a piece for them, but I'm not sure if he's that kind of impactful piece where they would choose to pass up on an Aiton even if they play the same position. He's just not that established yet. I do like him long term as a, as a small ball five, but I, at the same time, I'm not not taking Aiton. If I viewed Aiton as the, the solid overall number one pick in this class, and Atlanta landed at number one, John Collins is not making me pass up on DeAndre Ayton. That's
1: fair. I think I would agree with Donkic for you for Atlanta, and I've watched far less college uh, basketball than you have, so people could probably just ignore whatever I say for the next ten seconds. But uh, (laughs) they don't have the wing like creator right now, and I mean they need a secondary playmaker overall. And it's not, or the second primary playmaker, as stupid as that sounds, it's not Kemp Bazemore. Torian Prince has been kind of interesting running pick and rolls, and you can see that they'll even have DeAndre Bembry, when he's been on the court, try to do that. But Doncic is the guy that can actually do that. And since you have basically all your other wings, even if Bazemore's there and you have Prince, those are all complementary guys. So that just works with Doncic, and even if you still have Schroeder at the one. So I've just been personally surprised that Aiton has been, a lot of the mock drafts I've seen since Atlanta's basically been like having been at number one for a lot of them for much of this year that they've just had them with Aiton but I guess that speaks to his stock more so than it does necessarily fit but I think Doncic would be best suited in Atlanta for sure I just don't want to see him go to the Kings please that's just what I'm holding out hope against
0: yeah me too I just did a <laughs> to plug another podcast I did a, the a mock draft with Sam Bassini yesterday and his Game Theory podcast I had the number one pick and I was the Kings and I still took Luca, but that's definitely the destination I don't want him to go to, even though I think De'Aaron Fox has been a little bit better than the numbers suggest this year. I just this is not a situation that I'm fully encouraging anybody to go to right now.
1: Are they just there's also kind of like I guess there's not a glut of wings, but like the buddy healed and Bogdan Dongdanovich and then having Donkic in there. That like that just gets confusing, and I don't know if the Kings are a team you can trust to juggle um, all of those odds and ends. Yeah, I agree. Who would be? What? What are you? Who's your number two prospect? This is fun because I like that you've already deviated from what most mock drafts have as their top prospect.
0: Right now, I have Trey Young there, which is kind of a deviation from I think consensus. He's around five, six, seven. I my two to five is pretty close quartered. I have right now. I have DeAndre and Michael Porter, Jaron Jackson, and Trey Young in that two to five range, and I have them even. But I would prefer if I was forced to choose. I would prefer Trey Young and Jaron Jackson. For Trey Young, best fit right now, that's just really tough. I mean, Orlando's the obvious fit. They need him. Do I want him to go there? Is another question. <laughs> <laughs> like, so that's kind of, they have the clearest need for him at the top of the draft. I mean, you can make a case for him next to Booker, but I think that capture defensive ceiling the same way that Portland's is with Dame and CJ. It's just tough to really build a roster that way. So as far as offensive fit, I love it. I think Trey Young is an awesome offensive player um lead guard type just out of the top I just not a lot of teams really make sense i'd love him next to Nilakina in new york but at nine they're not it's he's not going to fall that far so i guess to answer the question i would i would go orlando just based on team need even though i don't want to see it happen
1: i agree with everything you said there and trey young's probably the prospect i know the most about just because he's been like he's the one that's taken everyone by storm it seems um and watching him shoot is just it's incredible to me and how quick he does things wouldn't this be this would be i don't know i don't think that they would do it and it definitely doesn't fill their biggest need but trey young and mike conley in the backcourt would be something
0: in memphis I, I dig that actually that'd be really fun they need a wing badly
1: so i don't, I don't know that they would do that um but depending on where they land if trey young is still there and some of those top wings are are off the board you know maybe uh So I I think it has to be Orlando uh, for Trey Young, though, just looking, like you said, at at team need, not even necessarily fit because Orlando hasn't shown that um, it it can necessarily develop guys. Their their post-Dwight Howard draft history or just rebuilding history has not been great. I would be more intrigued to see him in Phoenix, but it's like you said, that defensive ceiling is probably capped uh, even lower than what Portland's is with McCollum and Lillard because you've at least seen in Portland's conservative scheme, they've been okay with those two in the backcourt this year but you don't have you're not getting a lot of size in in Trey Young at all and Devin Booker has he's probably worse than CJ McCollum on that end of the floor and I don't think that Trey Young will necessarily be as good as defense as Damian Lillard has been this season but that's just that's just like so far off projections I would be more intrigued to see what happens in Phoenix but I agree that best fit is probably Orlando just by
0: default yeah that's basically where I'm at and who's number three for you Jaron Jackson Jr. out of Michigan State, um, a lot of guys have him kind of categorized already as his role-player type. I think there's more upside there. He's the best defensive player in the draft. Um, he's better than Bamba. His instincts, his reactionary athleticism, all of that. I've never seen a defensive player like him for a big in college. I'm assuming – I didn't watch Anthony Davis that closely as a prospect. I just started covering the draft probably last year full-time. I would assume it looked like Anthony Davis on that end. I mean, he's not Anthony Davis offensively, his ability to shoot. Off movement, off the dribble, like Davis does. He just doesn't have the form for that. It's more like kind of a pseudo push shot. But this is a guy who has high level instincts. He's improved every year. He's one of the youngest players in the draft. Uh, ridiculous rim protector, two level defender who can play on the perimeter. So, as far as team fit goes, he would be awesome on the Bulls next to Marketing. I think that that would allow them to invert their offense a lot. I mean, they get to have two floor spacing bigs. And Jackson can really cover for Marketing's defense, even though Marketing's been more solid. I thought he would for sure athletically, depending on the perimeter. He's still not a rim protector, so adding Jackson next to him. I mean, right now the Bulls are eight, so they're much lower than what I would have Jaron. But there's, it's conceivable that he falls that far. So the Bulls kind of stand out for me as far as roster fit. I like Hoiberg. I think he's underrated in several respects. So I think he'll be able to utilize Jaron. He's shown some proclivity to shoot off down screens, setting his feet quickly. So I really like that uh, Bulls fit for him.
1: What would you? The Bulls fit is good, and what would you think though? And they're probably a little bit. To, I don't know. I mean, the odds are so close right now just looking at the records, but what did you think about him in Dallas?
0: I like that too. I mean, you, you can see a pick-and-roll kind of centric offense being based around Dennis Smith and Jaron Jackson with Jackson's ability to pick and pop, open the lane up for Smith. I think, honestly, Jackson fits anywhere. He's one of the easiest players to fit. His archetype is just insanely valuable if he can, if he can shoot threes. I mean, because he's going to be a high-level rim protector. I think he could be the best defensive player in the league one day. I think he has those kind of consistent... Abilities, he's so high energy. He finishes plays. So I, you, you even talked me into a team like, I mean, if the Cavs if they got him, I think he could help LeBron from year one as far as being like a Miami kind of Chris Bosch type, who's a better rim protector. Ooh. So I think there's there's a lot of different fits on here. Like he'd make a ton of sense for Orlando too. They need floor spacing from the five. You could play him next to Isaac, next to Gordon if they resign Gordon. He, he just really you can go down the board and really he makes a lot of sense for all, all of these teams. Who is your number four guy? Right now, it's Michael Porter, um, but really tied with eight in both of those guys. But I'll go with Porter first because he's at least talked about. He's another guy who fits pretty seamlessly in the modern game. I think he's the best off the dribble shooter at his size in the draft. Uh, I've seen a lot of him because he played high school ball about 15 minutes from my house. So his senior year, I mean, he took the team that was, I think, last in the conference to number one in the entire country. (laughs) So (laughs)
1: he's
0: he's he's a real dude. I mean, Brandon Roy was the coach and that was that was a great team, but. As far as his fit, I mean, he's kind of reminds me, we don't know his floor game too much because he obviously hasn't played college basketball, so all the instincts, the defensive ability, it's been, it looks solid, not sold on that yet. But as a shot-making type who can play the four full-time, like at 6'10", I think that he's kind of like a 6'10 version of maybe Paul George. So you can really fit that into so many different lineups. Right now, I mean, I think the Mavericks would be kind of fascinating. I think maybe if you did a pick-and-roll with with Porter and Smith teams, would just switch that? But I think that would be a matchup creator, I mean, they they would definitely cause mismatches with that kind of lineup. That's how their lineup is structured. That's what Tankathon has right now as their number three pick. But again, I see his fit on so many of these teams. I mean, you could even argue Phoenix. They definitely need another scoring type. You know, Bender's not going to be that guy. Chris doesn't look like that guy. Um, Next to Booker, they just have to have more of a secondary punch. So even the Suns would make a lot of sense for Porter.
1: I also kind of like him. Dallas would be super interesting. I'm trying to remember when they've had... But, I don't, like, I, when's the last time they've had, like, an elite wing? And I Maybe I'm, I'm blanking on it and probably disrespecting someone. It's not Harrison Barnes, so let's just get that out of the way. I, Memphis would be interesting to me, too. I don't But I don't know if that's just because they've— I feel like the, the stuff he does is basically the player they've been on the lookout for since they were onto the map, and they've just been unable to find him. They thought that Chandler Parsons was never going to provide that same sort of athletic punch. But you plug Michael Porter in there, I don't, maybe they—would they be— Progressive enough to use him as a four, I don't know, but he can play small forward, especially if you're gonna, you know, compare him to like a six ten Paul George. He he would be interesting in Memphis to me
0: too. I like that fit too. I think if you could play him, if they'd use him as the four next to Gasol, you could really like get some. They they haven't had that kind of spacing ever, so that would be a much needed dynamic. <laughs> I mean, again, him. I. He's a great he's a great shooting prospect. I think he needs to get more credit for that. Uh, he's really high level. A lot of people think he's like Rudy Gay type. I, I don't. I think he's going to be a better shooter. And we don't really know about the instincts and the defense and the passing. Yeah, that's just kind of a working progress. And would you say Begley is your number five? Uh, Ayton is number five, I guess. Oh, Aiden. Yeah. Um Yeah, I think Phoenix for them, just because God, they need rebounding so bad. Um, and they need somebody at the five who can actually give them big man minutes. I mean, I know they've been playing Bender there more. and He's actually been good offensively as far as they're actually utilizing his creation, his playmaking at the top of the key. He's an excellent passer. But just looking long term, I mean, they're so bad on the defensive glass. Aiton is such a monster rebounder. Um, I don't know if they have Bender in theory could help cover some of Aiton's rim protection issues he's not the most instinctual defender he's defending the rim better and when he's involved in the play he moves really well in space so I think he's going to be overall a plus defensive player I don't think he's going to be a dynamite defensive player like an anchor type but the Suns stand out to me more than any of the other top level teams as far as what they specifically need so that would be probably my pick there
1: yeah I, I would probably like him there more if he I guess none of their bigs were polished defensively though uh, it just because you've already taken the Flyers on Chris and Bender, who haven't given you anything defensively, now you're going with Aiton. Even if you think he's going to be a plus defender at some point, you'd, or, how long does it take for him to develop into one? Um, yep. He would be kind of interesting. Uh, you've already made this comparison, basically, but him and Mark and in Chicago would be super interesting if that opportunity presents itself. Although I guess the same defensive issues kind of plague you there, but Fred Hoiberg coaching those two bigs would, would be super fun.
0: That's a great point. I, I like that fit, too, but for the same reasons – I just, it's tough with him if you're not if you don't fully believe in the rim protection, the, the anchoring ability. I just know he's going to rebound and he's going to outleap people. He's he's bigger, and for the for the teams in the top five ish, he's going to go top two. I would be surprised if he doesn't go number one, honestly. And for the teams drafting that range, I think you could even make a case for Dallas. Like in a pick and roll with Dennis Smith, like you can't switch that with Aiden. He, he's just too good on the interior. He's too big. So that would just open up a lot of opportunities there too you can make the case for that even though they don't have the defensive inter- infrastructure either
1: who do you got at number six
0: right now I have Mo Bamba it's really close with him and Marvin Bagley six seven Bamba's one of the toughest fits I again I did that pod with Vecini I ended up with Memphis at seven and I took Bamba there and I think that's the worst case scenario <laughs> honestly just playing behind Marcus on a that team that needs production right now or wants that I think it's going to take him a couple of years to really get his legs under him. He needs to add girth in his lower body, solidify his frame. So when you look at a team that, you know, you know, is far away and just needs an upside shot, I mean, what team stands out for you as far as in that predicament, what team stands out as far as like, we have multiple years, we're going to build long-term, we can invest a lot of capital in this guy and a lot of time. I think Chicago would be one. Uh, I guess that's kind of tricky just because if you assume they're
1: going to resign Zach Levine, this summer it would be kind of interesting if cleveland's the one that ends up with him and then you're kind of entering trade negotiations with other teams for it is there like a like is charlotte a team like if you were talking about a huge like kemba walker blockbuster with them that would have the patience for him um i, I don't i don't even know it, it's just it's so you're right he is like one of the toughest ones to place they're Wow, that's a good question. Mate, no, not Sacramento. <laughs> Screw Sacramento. I think you could make easily make the case for Dallas, depending on how gradual they're trying to make their rebuild. I don't think they're probably going to end up picking higher than he would go. Me- Memphis would be fine if they finally decide to rebuild. That would probably, like having Bamba there wouldn't be, that, that would actually be like a, a better fit. If you're going to move Gasol and you're going to move Mike Conley, I don't know what you're going to do with Chandler Parsons. No one's trading for him. Then you could use him as a building block. Um, Chicago, for me, kind of, I think, would stand out more. Or, or Dallas. I, D- Dallas is just, I guess you could plug, Dallas has been on the search for these bigs forever, so maybe they'd be more willing to take some risks. They've tried to do it in free agency a bunch of times. Uh, so so those would be the two teams that I think stand out more than anyone else.
0: Yeah, I think I'm inclined to agree with you. I mean, the Kings couldn't use rim protection, but we've seen how they develop bigs. You just, I just can't do it to Bomba. I think his upside is too high to go to go there. And then you have, I think, Dallas, Chicago, both those teams make sense conceptually. I like Bomba's fit as an anchor. If you're going to have Levine, if you're going to have marketing who knows what the... You're going to have at small forward or whatnot. You're going to need someone who can really protect the rim at a high level. So he makes a lot of conceptual sense there. And number
1: seven, we're getting near the end.
0: Marvin Bagley. So this one's kind of easy because... I think Bagley is the most fit-dependent player in the draft, so there's definitely two teams that stand out in the top 10. Memphis is one. I think Bagley's going to be able to produce from day one. You can play him in pick and roll with Conley, and you have the unicorn type with Gasol spacing the floor, even though you probably want to involve Gasol in the screen more than Bagley just for that gravity he creates as a shooter. But I do think that he fits what they want to do, gives them a much-needed athleticism injection as a pick and roll kind of play finisher, you have to utilize him as a play finisher. I think he's more of a five in the Amari role and you kind of have to build around him. But there are certain predicaments that allow for, you know, more conducive roster fit. The clear one for me is the Knicks. If they end up with a top four pick, he would make so much sense next to Porzingis. Um, Bagley can defend the perimeter better than Porzingis. He's still a work in progress there. But I like having Porzingis behind him. And then offensive for the same dynamic, you can have Porzingis kind of spacing the floor sum for Bagley, who can play in pick and roll, when Porzingis is in pick and roll, Bagley can be in the dunker spot. There's just more spacing there, so those two teams are the clear ones that stand out to me.
1: The Knicks, I feel like I'm, a, I'm just want, I'm going to go with you on them because I want a reason for them to shift Kristaps Porzingis to center full time, and I don't. You're <laughs> not going to draft Bagley and say, hey, he's going to be a, a three. Um, I'll, although I've been. Like as still kind of like a Knicks fan implant, although my fandom has waned over the years since covering the league, I would love to see them get Mikael Bridges. That's been the guy that since they've been hopelessly mediocre this season that I've I've wanted them to sort of land. Who do you have for number 10? Uh, wow, number 10. Number eight and final for this question for you.
0: You just mentioned him, Mikael Bridges, who fits on literally every team because that's what he is as a player. Like that 3 and D kind of high instincts wing. He could shoot a little bit off motion this year, more confident. A little bit off the bounce, but mostly you're looking at him as like a peak kind of Shane Battier type maybe. He fits everywhere. So, I mean, you take your pick. You can go. I took him for the Knicks yesterday when I did that mock drafts. I thought that his fit next to – Thank (laughs) you (laughs) so much. I thought his fit next to Nilakina and Porzingis. Like aligning that kind of defensive core would be pretty special. If you have Nilekina and him defending on the wings, they're both a little light. But I think they both play bigger than their size. That's one thing Nilekina has really impressed me with this year. he'll, He'll walk bigger guys out of the lane like Julius Randle. So with Mikhail, I believe in the shooting. So you could really you could argue him for Memphis. I mean, they need they've needed a wing like that forever. I think at 5, you're not taking Mikhail Bridges. He probably goes, you know, after pick 10. I, I wouldn't expect him to go where I have him ranked. I think he'll probably be devalued a little bit just based on his age and his upside. But you can make a case. I mean, he could be utilized on the Cavs next to LeBron. Um, even the Magic could use him. I, again, he's just someone who's super easy to fit. On basically any roster because he's kind of the ideal combination of what the modern game is coming uh, is looking for
1: he would yeah yeah. you're probably right there I would love to see especially if he's gonna go after 10 or after like if he's gonna go outside the top eight you start talking about teams Philly. like yeah Philly <laughs> I was about to say Philly they need yep. wings bad uh, even Utah would be incredibly interesting just to have I mean like look what they've done with Donovan Mitchell even Royce O'Neal has done some things there, now you have Jay Crowder, you have Joe Ingles. If you had him, talk about some defensive switchability. That would be that that would be fun to watch.
0: And I think you hit the nail on the head with the Philly one, especially. That's that's the the pick that everybody's been looking at all year with the Lakers pick. McHale's always been the guy in that range that makes the most sense. They just desperate desperately need guys who can guard smaller players, can be versatile on the defensive end, add floor spacing around their primaries. I, He's definitely the guy – if he's there at 11 and they don't, they don't take him, I'd be pretty stunned.
1: Are they the type of team, if they just end up uh, – even with the Lakers trying to win games, if they kind of end up at 8 or 7, do you think they have, like, the stones to kind of roll the dice on him there? Or is that
0: too high? That's a really great question. I don't it's, – it's so hard to know because some of the other upside guys in that range, like some guys really like Wendell Carter. I'm a big Wendell Carter fan. It's hard to justify him on the Sixers. So they're going to be – they're going to pass up on some of the bigs because they just – They're not going to take a big in the top 10, in my opinion. There's no way you can do that when you have Embiid, even with the injury history. You have to roll the dice on a position of value and position of need, more importantly. So I think that they might end up trying to trade back in that scenario. Maybe the Clippers try to trade up. They have two picks in the lottery. They wouldn't trade both, of course, but maybe they try to make a move. And they look to maybe better their draft positional value, picking up an an additional pick. I don't know if they'd take him eight or nine, honestly. That seems like maybe a a touch of a reach. For them i don't think it is at all i if i was the sixer mikhail would be in my top five in this class i just think he does exactly what they need
1: yeah i think he would be a fantastic fit there we'll have to see how that pans out i was very interested i loved your fits because they were like i don't want to use the word against the grain to imply that they were just hot takey but they were they were super interesting and they weren't necessarily all convention everything so thank you for doing that on the fly. that was not an easy one to answer
0: no, it's all good. This is what I think about on a daily basis. So it's uh, just conveying that information over podcast form.
1: Well, Cole, thank you again for coming on. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I'm sure I'll be pestering you again in the future to come on. Um, if you guys want to follow Cole, and you absolutely should, he is at Cole Zwicker. That's C O L E Z W I C K E R. Find his work at the Steppian. He is a scout for Net Scouts. He's a contributor to the Stepback. Back. And follow him on Twitter again because he has great salary cap analysis. Uh, He's a CBA aficionado. That's just a fantastic follow. If you're following me or Andy and not him, I don't really know what you're doing with your life. If you do want to follow me, however, I am at Dan Favale. That's F-A-V-A-L-E. You can follow Andy at Andrew D. Bailey, spelled as it sounds. Follow our host, MBA Math, at MBA underscore math. You can find Hardwood Knox at Hardwood Knox. I forgot to bump this at the beginning of the podcast, but please, your subscriptions, reviews, and ratings on iTunes mean the world to us. So if you haven't, take the 10 to 15 seconds out of your day. Please give us a star, a starred review, five star preferably, but I don't want to tell you guys what to do. Subscribe and, and also. Uh, an actual review that helps you know give us feedback uh we'd like to know that you're listening and taking things in since andy is not here i only have to give one shout out and that is the ceremonial shout out to the one the only the goat kyle anderson until next time
0: Lowe's knows you'll do it right and do it yourself to make refreshing changes to your kitchen and bath we do it right too with up to 40 percent off select kitchen and bath essentials during the final days of our refresh for less kitchen and bath event that's up to 40% off faucets, vanities, showerheads, and more. For kitchen and bath updates that keep you within budget, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offer valid through 3-6. See store for details, U.S. only.